Thank you, Josie, for leading us in prayer and reading. Um, good morning, and a uh, happy new year to you. I am Mark, as uh, Pastor Paul mentioned earlier, and it's my uh, pleasure to get to preach here this morning on this first Sunday of the new year. Um, and we're actually going to uh, be picking up a series that uh, Pastor Paul started here at Grace Valley uh, back on the first Sunday of 2020. Um, and the idea was to preach a seven-year series, one sermon a year, on the uh, seven letters to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3, or Revelation 2 and 3. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, we would like to do that in order to take the opportunity to hold ourselves up to them for evaluation and to consider which of the warnings rings true for us and what encouragements we can glean from them as we face a new year together as well. Um, unfortunately, that plan was derailed by the specific needs of the COVID years, but uh, we are happy to finally be able to get back to it today. Um, and as I mentioned, Paul began that series, and so in that time he preached on the first letter to the first church, which is the church at Ephesus, which means this morning we picked the series up by digging into the second letter to the second church, which is the church at Smyrna. Um, and as we do so, we're going to see that the major theme here is the inevitability of trials and suffering in the earthly human experience. And it's no less true today than it was then. However, we're also going to see that there's great encouragement for the believer in the midst of these trials and sufferings. We'll see how Jesus shared a number of things with the church at Smyrna to help them stand firm in their faith in the face of persecution and how we can benefit from these things as well. These are universal assurances for God's people. And so much of the application of today's message is just to know these things and to keep them front of mind the next time you face trial in your life. And these things are, um, I've broken it down into three things. Here, the first being the limited scope of earthly suffering. Secondly, the means by which Christians can endure suffering. And then thirdly, the purposes accomplished through suffering. All right. Um, before we dive into the letter, uh, specifically to the church at Smyrna, we need to establish a little bit of background. Um, the, book of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation is often considered to be the most intimidating book in the Bible because it's so full of strange and extreme imagery. Um, dragons and mysterious warlords, uh, beasts made up of the different parts of different animals and people and scrolls and seals and lampstands. Uh, so what does it all mean? It's important to note that the book of Revelation seeks to convey spiritual realities, uh, such as spiritual warfare and the, the blinding glory of the throne room of Jesus, things that our simple minds just don't have the accurate words or analogs for. Jesus himself came to the apostle John as he's exiled on the island of Patmos and commissions him with communicating the content of a message that was so otherworldly it could only be communicated through dreams or visions. 
And here John now has to try and convey that in a letter. Right? And so he piles up descriptive language and imagery, hoping to convey the wonder and the magnitude of what he has seen as accurately as he possibly can, given the limitations of human language and imagination. Jesus is pulling back the curtain on the spiritual and heavenly realms in order to encourage his church. This is where the title of the book comes from. Revelation, uh, the Greek word which sounds very much like apocalypse, actually means revelation or revealing. And so the book of Revelation is more than just a weird apocalyptic dreamscape. In fact, most people miss the fact that um, it is basically a pastoral letter from Jesus to his church. It shares a number of characteristics with other New Testament letters. It's inspired by the divine author. It's written and recorded by a human author with pastoral intent toward its intended audience. It has, begins with standard greetings, closes with standard blessings. And so all the strange imagery in the book serves to further the intended pastoral purposes of these letters. That's the point I'm trying to make here, which is ultimately to encourage the churches, specifically those in Asia, Asia Minor at the close of the first century, but also universally, to stand firm in their faith because the victory has already been won, though it may not seem like it at some times. It is guaranteed. So persevere, don't be discouraged by persecution or seduced by the shiny things of the world, but rather hold fast to the promise of eternity and glory with him who is making all things new. That's the overall message. And these letters to the churches reflect that, but in a much more specific and personalized way. All right, so let's dive into our text. Verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. It's incredibly important to note how Jesus introduces himself. Because he does so differently in each of these letters to each of the seven churches. He reveals himself in a way that is particular to the church that he is addressing at the time. And the way that they need to see him based on their specific circumstances. Here he introduces himself as the one who is the first and the last. And the one who died and came to life again. This is reminiscent of how Jesus initially introduced himself to John in chapter 1. It's actually a callback to verse 17, where he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The first and the last. He is the one who is both at the beginning and at the end of human history. He is the eternal one. It demonstrates his sovereignty over all worldly affairs. And of course, that would be important as a reminder for a church suffering persecution, right? And the second designation, the one who died and came to life again, reminds believers that this is the resurrected Jesus who has conquered death 
and now holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. That means not even death is an obstacle for him in accomplishing his purposes, neither his death nor ours. And that's a crucial reminder to a people that he is about to ask to be faithful even to the point of death. Right? We're not there yet. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Let's pull this apart. First, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. So there are two sources of trial here, but they're related. The apparent oppression that they're suffering with its emotional and potentially physical toll, but also the poverty that has resulted from this oppression. So we have to ask ourselves, what is happening here in Smyrna at this time? It is most likely that John is recording this vision in the early 90s AD during the reign of Emperor Domitian. Um, Emperor worship had always been present in the Roman Empire to some degree. Uh, the emperor had always thought of himself as a god, but yet he was always thought of as one among the pantheon of other gods. And so the worship of other gods was acceptable in a very religiously syncretistic uh, place. Um, but in the late first century, there was a growing imperial cult beginning to establish itself across the empire. Um, and particularly following Nero's reign, religious minorities were no longer tolerated the way they once were in the Roman Empire. And so everyone was expected to fall in line. And particularly here of interest is the fact that the governors of the provinces further from Rome's eye, like Smyrna, which would have been located in what is now modern-day Turkey, these governors were constantly vying for the emperor's attention and favor. And so they had even more reason to enforce participation in the cult, potentially even by coercive means. They wanted to publicly display their fervor for honoring the emperor by forcing their subjects to as well. And to add one more stone uh, to this, Smyrna was a city known far and wide for its beautiful architecture. Um, and they took great pride in this. And because of this, multiple temples were built there in Smyrna, dedicated to temple or to emperor worship. So there would have been even more pressure to conform to the practices of the local culture and to go along with the cult here than in other places. All right, so Christians refusing to participate in this would have been at the very bare minimum ostracized for their position. But more likely, their businesses would also have been boycotted. They likely would have been barred from joining any of the skilled labor guilds that served as the gatekeepers of commerce in the Roman Empire. Um, and this is the most likely explanation for their extreme poverty living in an otherwise affluent city. Um, so the Smyrnian Christians are being targeted by their pagan culture, um, but they're also getting it from the other side. If we look at the second half of verse 9, uh, it says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jewish people of the Roman Empire still retained some favor, and they were the one religious group with a formal exception from participating in the worship of the emperor. Um, they had had some sort of a special arrangement where they paid a special tribute or an exemption tax of some kind, and the Christians had, up to this point, benefited from this because the Roman authorities 
thought of Christianity as just a sect of Judaism. Um, and at least in the beginning, both the Jews and the Christians were happy to tolerate that confusion uh, in favor of not rocking the boat uh, and potentially disadvantaging their own groups. Um, but by the late first century, Christians are no longer considered uh, simply a sect of Judaism. Uh, it's well known that they are very separate and there's some animosity between the groups. And they no longer enjoy the exemptions that they once did from offering the sacrifices to the emperor. Now, the Jews, they also believed that the Christians were blasphemers for worshiping Jesus as the Messiah, right? So they had a religious animosity towards them as well. Um, and now, with nothing restraining them from doing so, it seems that they made it their business in Smyrna to make sure that everyone knew who these Christians were and who to target. But Jesus says something very interesting here by saying that these particular people, they say that they're Jews, but they are not. In fact, they're a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is using the term Jew here in the very New Testament way as referring to God's chosen people. And he's saying that if this particular group is actually persecuting his church, they are showing themselves not to be members of God's chosen people, not to be members of what is called, what the Apostle Paul called the true Israel. And in fact, they're doing the work of Satan, who is the accuser, right? That is what his name means, after all. Um, it's actually not a proper name at all. It's a, it's a Hebrew word. It's Hashatim, which means the accuser. But over time, through various translations, it became a proper name for the devil. Um, however, here he is in the Smyrnian church using the Smyrnian Jews to accuse the Christians of treasonous behavior and have them thrown in jail by the local authorities. So the Smyrnian Christians are under immense pressure from all around. They can't catch a break. And under these conditions, anyone would be demoralized and wondering if it's really worth it. Right, think about it. Have you ever been in a position where standing on your Christian convictions caused you to lose the respect of your peers? Or perhaps refusing to uh, bend the rules or to deal dishonestly uh, with others has, has disadvantaged you in the workplace, perhaps. Possibly cost you promotions where other candidates were hungrier or uh, willing to go above and beyond, right? It's an incredibly frustrating place to be. And so it's to these beaten down, tired out, confused Christians that Jesus speaks these words of encouragement. Verse 10, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will, be, will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus says, do not be afraid. You are going to suffer. But it's for a limited amount of time, so be faithful, because if you make it to the other side, 
Even if you are killed, but you hang on to your faith, you will receive a prize worth more than all the wealth and respect and honor in this world. This is the meat of this text, and we're going to camp out here for the rest of our time. Um, We're going to unpack this piece by piece, but not necessarily in order. And so I'm going to begin with the phrase, you will suffer suffer persecution for 10 days. Uh, As you remember, our first point is the limited nature of earthly suffering. So it's important to understand something here about John and the way John is writing. Um, John expects his audience to be familiar with the Old Testament in general, but Specifically, in this case, he he expects his readers to be familiar with Daniel, the book of Daniel. Revelation is absolutely chock full of allusions, quotes, and hat tips to things that are written in the book of Daniel and the other prophets. But in this case, it's an allusion to Daniel 1, where Daniel and his friends have been brought into the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. They've been taken away in exile. Uh, The young men have been chosen for uh, re-education camps. And they've been brought into the palace where they're going to be um, fed and clothed and taught um, in the ways of the Babylonian Empire. And Daniel uh, takes some exception to the food that they've been offered. And he speaks to the attendant in charge of them. And he asks if they could be exempt from eating the food and wine of the palace because it would defile them. And it doesn't explain that further, but it's likely because the food would have been part of sacrificial ritual worship of the Babylonian emperor. And so in that sense, Daniel feels as though it would be defile him and his friends to eat it. And the attendant is scared but sympathetic to Daniel. And Daniel asks him, he says, he says and this is the phrase from Daniel 1, he says, Please test your servants for ten days. He asked them to test them by letting them eat just plain old veggies and water and see if they would come out on the other side as healthy as all the other young men. And after 10 days, they actually wound up in better shape than the rest of the men in their cohort. And so uh, the first thing we want to see here is that the 10-day reference is meant to draw the reader's mind to Daniel's test and to the test of his friends. It's not necessarily meant to be um, a, a reference to the exact amount of time they're going to be persecuted or to the length of their prison stay if they are to be imprisoned. Um, But it does, however, mean that their trial will be limited. Jesus is ensuring them that they can persevere through it as Daniel did. The scope of earthly suffering is ultimately limited. Um, And Jesus, as the Lord of history and time, can be trusted in that. Um, Which brings us to the second point, which is that you may remember um, was a reminder of the special means that Christians have been given to endure trials. Okay, so we jump back into the story of Daniel and his friends and their 10-day trial. Think about it. What is being tested here? It's not the strength of their resolve. Right? It's not their ability to resist good food and wine. No, what's being tested here is the Lord's provision for his people in their time of need. And the same thing is true here in Smyrna, in our text. Jesus says that the devil is going to have you thrown in prison by means of the synagogue of Satan, right? And there, the provision of your faith will be 
tested. No mere man can withstand the devil without the Holy Spirit strengthening them. But with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, when God is with you, you do have, sorry, you do not have to be afraid because he will carry on whatever good work he has begun in you to its completion on the final day. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6. The implication of what Jesus is saying here is that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. The Holy Spirit whom the Apostle Paul referred to as the power of the resurrection has taken up residence in you. This is why Jesus references his own resurrection in the greeting in this letter, right? The very same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the one holding you up now. Do you think he's going to let you fall? No, Jesus says. No, you can be faithful even to the point of death. Why? Because this very same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus' resurrection is now at work in you. You have nothing to be afraid of, not even death itself. One of my favorite modern hymns is the hymn in Christ Alone. And the fourth verse begins with these words. And if I was into tattoos, I would get this on my body. <laughs> but I'm not. So the line is, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. This is why Jesus said of the Smyrnian Christians in the previous verse, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. You are rich in the way that matters most. You are rich in faith and spiritual blessing. You have the power of Christ at work in you, and he is up to something. Which brings us to the final point, which is the purposes accomplished through suffering. Jesus encourages the Smyrnian Christians to persevere for a reason. He promises that it's going to be worth it. So what's he getting at? He says, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Okay, so we have to ask... Jesus introduced himself as the first and the last, right? The one who holds the keys of death in Hades. Surely, this sovereign and omnipotent Jesus could stop the devil from doing these things, right? Of course he could. But he is accomplishing something. In his infinite wisdom and with his omniscient perspective. He is working out the details of his plans for his peoples through their circumstances, whatever they happen to be. In this case, it's persecution. It's, that's a hard one for many of us to wrap our brains around, I think. Sometimes we think of that as, as a very severe form of trial. And it's not wrong. But it's not limited to that. Trials come in all shapes and sizes. It could be a cancer diagnosis. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be the loss of a friendship. It could be the loss of a career. Trials come in all different shapes and sizes, and they're no less a tool of God's redemption in his people. All right, so faced with the difficulty of holding up the sovereign goodness of God and the suffering of humans in this earthly life, 
holding them in tension, I've always come back to a quote from Johnny Erickson Tata from her book, When God Weeps, where she writes, sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. In other words, Jesus allows the devil to put pressure on his people in order to accomplish something lovely in them. Our text says it is to test them, right? Now, in the New Testament, the idea of testing arises again and again. And sometimes it's paired more explicitly with imagery imagery that's borrowed from silversmithing, right? And the silversmiths would test or refine metals, right? And the way they would accomplish this is through the process of smelting, which is basically um, multiple cycles of heating the metal into a molten liquid, letting it cool, and then skimming off the dross or impurities that come to settle on the surface. They repeat this process over and over and over again until the cooled metal is pure enough to reflect the silversmith's image back at them like a mirror. Imagine for a moment that you are a lump of silver. You have no idea what the silversmith is up to and you're put through this excruciating process. This would feel like cruel and arbitrary punishment or torture, right? But the silversmith knows what he is doing, right? He's making you more and more into what you were intended to be. He's clearing away all of the dirt and filth that have accumulated and tarnished and distorted your ability to reflect your maker's image. And God is a silversmith preparing his people for glory. And he uses various kinds of trials and suffering to accomplish it. The Apostle Paul talking about his own ministry, his life of ministry, said in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary trials. This is a man who was stoned and left for dead imprisoned, shipwrecked three times, beaten countless times. He calls this light and momentary trial. My friends, it is inevitable that trials will come. You need to decide how you are going to respond to them. You do have a choice. Jesus alludes to as much here. The Smyrnian Christians could have chosen not to be faithful, Right? They could have chosen to conform to the demands of their culture and compromise their faith. They could have opted out of their temporary afflictions. But at what cost? Jesus says that those who remain faithful will receive life as their victor's crown. And he builds on this in the last sentence of the letter. He says, the one who is victorious will not be hurt, by the sec- not hurt at all by the second death. So what is he saying? He's saying the faithful receive eternal life as their victor's crown and the victorious will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus, the eternal one, says that what you gain by remaining faithful to him in this life, even to the point of death, if need be, is eternity with him in glory. But if that's true, then the inverse must also be true. 
Those who reject Christ in this life in order to avoid temporary affliction will spend eternity without him as well. And that is a far, far worse fate. So Jesus encourages his people to stand firm. And he reminds them that it's momentary in comparison with eternity. He has given us the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in every way. And we are being prepared for eternity and glory with him through it all. Christian, whatever the affliction in your life, however big or small it may be, if you face it in faith, you are being refined. You are being polished. You are being prepared to be presented to your Savior in eternity because you are his treasured possession. For anyone here who is not a believer or who is not yet a believer, who is wrestling with these things, don't you want your suffering in this life to mean something? Don't you want it to be worth something? C.S. Lewis once wrote, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Consider that he may be trying to wake you, to reach you, to invite you in, to be counted among the victorious in him. So it's New Year's Day. Um, time when people make their resolutions. If you commit to anything in 2023, commit to responding to your trials meaningfully and faithfully. Don't run from them. Don't numb yourself to them. Don't emotionally shut yourself off from the world. Rather, ask God to do his refining work in you through them. And to make you worthy of the victor's crown that he purchased for you and for me as he wore a crown of thorns to the cross to strip the first death of its terrifying power over you and me. And he went on to suffer the horror of separation from God the Father on our behalf as well. So that we could be spared the pain of the second death and be granted the crown of life instead. Praise the Lord. Jesus concludes this letter by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Eternal One, sovereign over all earthly affairs, you are indeed making all things new. Jesus, thank you for your gentle assurances and reminders. Lord, press these truths deep into our hearts so that the next time we encounter trial or hardship in our lives, we would trust you. We would fall on you knowing that you are up to your redemptive work in all things, even the most hard and undesirable things. Father, we praise you for this that no situation in our lives is beyond the scope of your redemption. 
And we love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, what do you want to do there, Paul? Do you want to go to the table or do you want to do a Q&A? Yeah? All right. At this point, you are welcome to ask any questions you might have. Or you are free to text them to me <laughs> or email them to me uh, at some point throughout the week. Um, and I'd be happy to get back to you as well. We're good. Let's see if I need to email my phone. All right. Then I think we turn our attention to the table. Thank you, Mark. Um, it is it is hard to preach sermons on particularly persecution be, to to our to our culture because I, I'm willing to bet 99.5 percent of us here don't actually have a clue what it means to be persecuted for our faith and. So that's already one obstacle you have to overcome. And then you also have to overcome the obstacle that is the resistance of the human heart that says, wait a minute, I don't want persecution. I don't want to experience oppression or discrimination because of my faith. I don't want trials in my life, even if it means it's going to make me a better Christian. I want to become a better Christian through a really good Bible study <laughs> that Jessica's leading in the winter. You should all sign up. I want to become a, a really good Christian through my personal devotional life. I want to become a really good Christian through excellent worship at my, my church. I don't want to become a really good Christian through persecution and suffering and trial and hardship and, and all that kind of stuff. I don't want that. Trust me, I don't want that either. But the, the, the teaching of the Bible is consistent throughout. We aren't refined through comfort. We are refined through hardship. And frankly, I've, every mature, wise, thoughtful, devoted believer that I've gotten to know always has some story of suffering in their life. Nobody grows to maturity through ease. And that's why the passage ends. He who has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, let them listen. Pray that you will have ears to receive what God has spoken to you this day. And not to sound ominous at the beginning of a new year, but I do believe that the church, the Western church, is 
on the cusp of beginning to experience actual persecution for our faith. Uh, I think that there's real potential over the next 25 years that Christians are going to be increasingly isolated and marginalized from mainstream culture because of their convictions around what it means to be human. Let me just use that broad categorization for everything we believe. And so we need to produce followers of Jesus Christ who are clear thinking, deep feeling, and humbly serving through a robust theology of suffering. We have to prepare ourselves for that by taking on texts like we just read today and Mark just preached on today and really sinking them deep into our bones so that when we are persecuted, we won't be surprised. We'll be able to rejoice not for our sufferings, but in our sufferings, as the Apostle Paul says. And we will be able to stand firm in the faith despite the challenges that we will inevitably face. And one of the ways that God strengthens us for that task is he gives us the supper.